welcome to The Intersection, a hub where we celebrate growth, service, authenticity, and community. I'm Kimberly McKenzie. You live a busy life. Your time is valuable and we appreciate that. That's why we're so grateful that you chose to spend a little bit of your time with us today. I'll be joined by my co-host, Paul Nazareth, in a minute. And in this very first episode, we're going to share a little bit about who we are so that you can get to know us better. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Paul. Good to see you, friend. Great to see you too, Kimberly. I think uh, a lot of people may not know this, but we've been chatting with each other about charity stuff for a long time. Do you remember... Do you remember when that was? I don't. Probably I honestly don't. I feel like you've always been in my life. Little under fifteen years or so. Oh my gosh, that yeah. makes, kind of makes me feel a little bit old. Well, um, we're here to have candid conversations about charity, and we're just starting this brand new podcast and testing the technology and spending time with each other. I thought today we might chat a little bit about what brought us into this sector. Do you remember the first time you, you know, what do you remember what sparked your interest in charitable work? You know, partly it's because it was just baked into my DNA, yeah. right? Uh, my family is super churchy, you know, and uh, we, we lived in the church like four or five days a week in right. different kind of ministries and different community things. So it was just kind of how you lived. And, uh, you know, again, this is actually what I do often with, with the donors is just unpack where did that come from? And for me, it was collecting clothes for the Vincent DePaul trucks and running community kitchens, uh, reaching out to seniors in different communities. It was, it was just kind of how we lived. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me, it was very much the same way. I grew up in a service club family. So our sort of my family DNA was always a service above self kind of thing in a very real way. So I grew up going to walkathons and I think some of my I'll never forget the morning after the Kinsman casino night having to go into that hall and clean up after all those folks and that was gosh that was in the late mm, 70s and 80s special so, event trauma huh yeah 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 but it was always we were always being dragged around to those things my father owned a real estate business in Cranbrook BC which at that time was a really small town and so the service clubs were the pillar of the community and and um, they brought their kids to everything they did. So uh, it was always about service above self for me. Mm -hmm. How did that, how do you think that upbringing transitioned to you into your first volunteer job? Do you remember what that was? Yeah, you know, I, I think this, the way you talk about it too, is that that concept of, and I'm really reflecting these days on the, the place of volunteerism in the heart of all social good. Right. You know, and I think sometimes when, because I've been in places in my life where it gets disconnected and then you get too far over to one side of philanthropy, uh, is that getting your hands dirty in the work. So for me, a lot of that volunteerism was exactly that. Look, I was a young boy and uh, that's free labor. Yeah. So what do you do with young boys? You put them to work. So yeah, stacking lots of church chairs. Stacking sure. church chairs. I could, that sound is the clickety clack in my dreams, yeah. uh, but in it was also the warmth. When they talk about it takes a village, I grew up in a village. Yeah. 
of people in my church community. Also, my ethnic community is very tight knit. We have an, a formal nonprofit association that's been around in Canada for 30 years and been active for <laughs> close to 600. Uh, and so the, it's it's all that community piece. And in a lot of ways, I think we've lost a lot of that. And I can definitely track it to a lot of things that are going wrong in society and charity. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean, aside from getting involved in the work of my parents as a child, my first adult volunteer was, oh, I, I was, um, I was a young pregnant mother and I started going to La Leche League, uh, community meetings. It's an, or a national international organization that helps women become breastfeeding mothers. And so I started going when I was pregnant with my daughter uh, 25 years ago, and I loved the connection and the people so much. I went up to the leader of the group and said, I want to lead one of these groups. And she, she said, uh, Kimberly, maybe have your baby first. Just see how that goes. <laughs> yes. And if that goes well and you still like coming back here, then we'll talk about that. And it was all guns blazing for me as a young mom with babies. I became a volunteer leader and uh, started coaching leaders. And, and I mean, eventually they, they started paying me. Isn't there um, something in there about if you want something done, ask a busy person? Yeah, isn't that the truth? Yeah, I, I do see a lot of this about, uh, of our, you know, at least of my generation and some of those that I you know, interact with. Uh, about um, just young mothers and the the power that they wield, because it opens their their life up to so much more. But it's just astounding that because at a time when so many other people pull back, yeah. there's a whole bunch of others that are stepping forward. Well, that was certainly my case. You know, hmm. I I always, I mean, my life's mission at that time was to be a mother. I couldn't imagine a life doing anything else, but being a volunteer with that organization provided me with socialization. It provided me with education. It provided, they gave me courses on how to train other leaders. I felt valued and important while I was carrying my baby around. So was it, did it help you out of curiosity? Did it help you to also develop a separate sense of self? I think because so. One of the things I've always appreciated about you, and it's something that I gravitate towards with people was in my early 20s, I, I I really didn't, if I wanted to become a parent, I really didn't like how some people, and no judgment, I just didn't want for myself to become that sloppy dad. Yeah. That sweatpants wearing, wearing beard drinking, excuse to do nothing. Uh, and again, it was just more like I was seeing that on my friends and it was hurting me that I was losing them. And I was losing the excellence and the sharper edges of them. And so I really determined to say, I want to be a committed parent, but I still want to have a sense of self and, and have another world in which it's frankly a little clean and sterilized and I can, I can be who I need to be. Right. And you've just amazingly sometimes managed to be those two separate people, especially when I met you as an executive director uh, at the time, pretty much one of the first people blogging uh, in the whole charitable sector for me. You know, how did those two separate selves develop? Because I know you as someone who is absolutely all in as a parent, but who has a very developed professional self. Oh, that's sweet. I thank you. I, uh, I think that I think we need to talk about burnout in another episode of this podcast. Mm. 
<laughs> you know, I think that a lot of women people, a lot of people who are trying to be everything to their family and everything to their career often um, are nothing to themselves. And, and, and so we need to, we need to talk about that in a, in another episode of our podcast that I think that we'll, would be. We'll call it the Julia Roberts runaway bride. How do you like your eggs? Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that would be great. Yeah. Well, you've been on social media since some, um, I mean, since way before I met you, you've been using it to network and get to know people and build a community way before 2008. Yeah. Not too far before, you know, I was really brought on by people like yourself, Leah Eustace, John Lepp. And, and part of it was actually, you know, straight up, I was lonely. I, w- I was reaching the pinnacle of my career in a job that I thought I wanted it to be my dream job. Yeah. And the better I got at it, the more isolated I became. Yeah. And partly because I was wonderfully obsessed. I'd been dreaming about this job for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. I got it. And it's again, connected to my faith community and churches. And I was getting to visit hundreds a year, but I was also doing weekends on pulpits away from my young family, not spending as much time as I would have liked in a lot of my professional community and hanging around the same folks. Yeah. And social media all of a sudden opened up a whole new world because as much as LinkedIn is the 24 seven conference, Twitter is the networking event at night with drinks. That's right. That's right. I loved Twitter in 2008. And now I am all about Clubhouse. I have to tell you. <laughs> it's like I've you been following that. your descent into Clubhouse for the past couple of days. Yes. Yeah, I know. I know. So what was that first paid gig that you had then? Uh in um in this in this charitable world? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It, you know, it was uh I was working full-time in advertising and marketing and finding a lot of success in it. But like a lot of people, I found that my success in sales quickly took me to a dark place. And that a lot of success in for-profit is awesome, but you know, it's not always the most fulfilling or balanced. Yeah. And I was volunteering uh, a good 20 hours a week with my university in a call center, which is one of the greatest training grounds you're ever going to find for fundraisers. I've done that. And the head of annual fund for my university said, look, you're really good at this. You should think about fundraising. Mm-hmm. And then my event trauma came up. And, you know, one of the strongest memories I have of fundraising was the pressure. And I make a lot of jokes about it, but I didn't like it selling chocolate almonds. Yeah. I didn't like the the transactional, the way it made me feel, the way people treated me. You know, I wasn't the biggest fan of all those big events. And you bet I was the one cleaning up after and all the pressure before and the power imbalances. And that all came back and I said, I don't like that. Yeah. And they said, but you're so good at the call center. I said, because that's a conversation yeah. and that's a balanced conversation. And frankly, I'm like a philanthropist pulling out these people's dreams you know that's what we were doing we were saying stop i know you give money to this university do you like it no well what would help you to like it what could you give to that you didn't get while you were here oh and then people got dreaming and so the person said that's what you got to do it's called plan giving we we went on charity village right that day found my first role in an international uh charity hiring for plan giving and that was it. It was wow. 1999. And I've been like a bullet out of a gun ever since 21 yeah. years. 21 years, specifically in planned giving. And 
And for anyone who may be listening to the podcast who doesn't know, planned giving is when donors um, make a bequest. Usually it's a bequest, but there's lots of other vehicles in their will so that when they die, a part of their estate gets donated to that charity. And as a result of that, there's a tax benefit to their estate. So that's the, the, that's that's the technical. It's a little yeah. technical, but for me, I love to think it's an extension of your values beyond your lifetime. And isn't it a wonderful channel where it's really all about pull? You know, there's no pushing, there's no hard sales. It's a nice, gentle conversation, truly donor led, isn't it? And it's it's hard for people to believe me when I tell them that when you're doing it right, it's it is donor led and they're walking in the door and they're calling you up. And yeah. everybody thinks that fundraising has got to be push and ask and, you know, and a lot of it, you know, still does. There's got to be that in there. But yeah. it's, for me, one of the most organic things there is. Sales, 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 sales. Yeah. yeah. I um, I came into this profession in, a, again, following my heart. And the paycheck just happened to follow. I mean, it was with that same organization where I was just spending so much time volunteering for them at local level, then regional level, then national level and seeing mm -hmm. a need and going, I really want to do that. And eventually the executive director, I started raising money for them through a conference program. And the executive director finally said, we should pay you. So they gave me a national title. Uh, my kids were still little, so I was able to do it from a home office. And it was just, I think, 20 hours a week, but, and I got $15 an hour. <laughs> And I was just so happy to a transition into my volunteer work into something that would buy a few groceries and um, to feel really valued and appreciated. And, and because of they couldn't afford to pay me too much, they also included a membership for the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Aha. Uh -huh. Aha. Uh -huh. So I learned this business through interlibrary loans. I remember Ken Burnett's relationship fundraising came to me in 1999, I think. I would have to go back and check. Maybe it was 2000 mm -hmm. from a library in Thunder Bay. And so did um, Mal Warwick's How to Write Successful Fundraisers. So I was I would literally, oh, we should do a direct mail piece. I should read this book and learn how to do a direct mail piece, right? It's not so, like so that. So where were you then, physically? Physically, I was at my home office in Minnesing, Ontario. Okay. Because you, so, know, it, you said about plugging into the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Yeah. And I think there's something about, and I think we do it a lot better now as a profession, plugging people into to a professional community Absolutely. as soon as possible changes everything. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, because it's such a lonely business, right? This is, I, I think. Say, say more about that, Kimberly, because it's a lonely business, but people see us at special events and hobnobbing. Oh. Uh, you know, I remember being at a university and uh, somebody in the administration of prospect research said, must be nice to go to all these parties and do all these things. And at <laughs> the time I said, you know, I'm starting a family. I, I It's not that I want to be at these things, but that's where the conversations happen. So that's where we need to be. It's not about parties and for them, you know, celebrity, because at a, a university, I was meeting a lot of intellectual celebrities. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't about that. It doesn't sound like it was about that for you either. Not at all. It was, I think, for many 
people and, and, and you know 20 something years later it's a little bit different because there are actual education programs that teach people how to do this job but that doesn't mean that the need for connection between people who understand what it takes is any less important it's just as important especially right now this is why we're doing this right because we want to connect people and have candid real conversations about charities yeah uh, so so you know what i think it is i think paul i know i know this i know this with the clients that i work with and i know this in the jobs that i've had that the profession of fundraising raising money for charity is a grossly misunderstood profession and i also think among fundraisers there's a fair bit of navel gazing i might get in trouble for that but that's what this is about right to be perfectly candid mm -hmm. i think we there we are at risk of going to these events hugging each other lifting each other up validating what we think and then we go back to jobs where we make a presentation maybe at a meeting and we say, this is everything I learned at the conference and you know the programming staff and the comm staff and the directors are sitting there going, oh, okay, that's nice, next, move on. And there isn't really an understanding of the change agent that a really great fundraiser is in ad advancing a culture shift so that they can do more together. That's I think, where I, I think-, think you're right. And I don't think you're doing anything a disservice because you're reflecting on the fact that it's a it's a bizarre profession. It's a profession in which you are called to be a hyper extrovert at these special events, and then a focused introvert to do your prospect research and to do true strategic stewardship. And that weirds us out. And I definitely agree that we we maybe look inwards because there's not a lot of people allow us allowing us to look outwards. Sure. Yeah, yeah we, we need that validation. We do need to be pumped up. We need, and especially fundraisers who are living in isolation professionally. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think they that those kinds of connections and professional associations like CAGP and AFP and just the community and Twitter and all sorts of communities that are building now um, are fundamentally important to A, challenge us to be better and B, support us to be uh, real influencers of change within our organizations. Mm -hmm. So we have so much to talk about on this yeah. podcast. Well, people are just getting to know us. Why don't you tell me um, uh, what what was the biggest challenge you think you've had professionally? Are you ready to talk about that? You want to yeah. lay it all out there? or? I am because well, that's why we're doing this. You bet it's why I'm we're doing your this. Face. I'm looking down at your face to go, oh, Kimberly, maybe you went too far. No, 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 that's exactly why we're doing this because they're, you know, in a lot of my work, I need to stay focused on the people I'm serving and I'm there to teach and help. And so there isn't space for my story. And I'm happy to tell it because 21 years in a place, you do reflect on this. And I did, I had these setbacks in a lot of different ways. I had a setback when it came to my job. And what I thought was my dream job and was the thing that burnt me out and almost killed me. Again, I know that it's the job I still want to do the most in the world, but I know that it takes me off balance too far to obsession than strategy. And I also had a, a break with my own professional community uh, in that I was a volunteer. And as a young person, I didn't have opportunities and I didn't make them myself to do the self work, to be emotionally aware to understand how at times my passion pushes people away, freaks them out. 
Oh, um, uh, yeah, I yes, I am not freaked out by you, but as someone else who can come across a little strong, I totally get that. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and, and so, you know, laser focused on the things that I'm about and the things that I believe in. And wonderfully enough, I got good feedback mid-career to rebalance those things, but they were huge setbacks and almost took me out. Again, I was leaving the profession. I was at this role and I went to a bank still in philanthropic advisory services, kind of with one foot in the sector, but in some ways it was my time I was ready to go, you know, and go do something else. And wonderfully enough, being frankly close to an amazing professional, my, my uh, boss at the time, and then reinvesting in my community brought me back. Yeah. Uh, and letting myself follow my curiosity. This is a big thing I believe in to say, the profession will always make you commit to status quo. Your job will always want you to do the same thing over and over. But I know that almost every fundraiser out there has a curiosity, knows an angle that could blow up, and we just don't follow it because it's not on our job description. And so when I was cast out for a few years, I found digital media, I found another community, and I started following my curiosity towards what the hell is going on with the internet? Right. I knew that digital transactions were going to be a thing. I knew that e-commerce in that space and that we were going to live on the net sooner or later. This was in the mid kind of 2010s. And that's what took me to Canada Helps and an amazing team where we scaled from, you know, 50 million and change to now pushing 500 million. So, you know, that's that's a reminder, too, that you've got to give yourself permission to follow your curiosity, take those risks. And if it's not on the job, then you got to do it off the job. Yeah. Yeah. That network is so important. Yeah. Well, the network is important to catch you. Good point. Because, you know, I, I had I put, pulled people I respected around me, yeah. uh, you know, quite intentionally, mildly sneakily. So by, by calling out the people I valued the most and they created a net and a fortress around me such that when I was having literally panic attacks, mm-hmm. um, saying, I've got to take this risk. Everything in me tells me I've got to leave a completely stable job to take a risk on what I believe is the future. And I could put my family, you know, on welfare and bankrupt everybody and everything. It was that network that came for me, talked me off the ledge and said, no, here's how to do it strategically. Here's how to put a plan B in place. Know that you've got a lot of people that don't just care about you, but look out for you and you'll be okay. Jump. Yeah. Do you remember that night at my house? Yes. Holy cow. <laughs> we were crying around your dinner table. Oh, uh, I don't know. Well, we let you it, into a girl's night. We're like, no, we just want to support and nurture each other. But Paul's in Barry. I guess he should come. I'm I've been so always happy. crashing these things, all the tweed cottages <laughs> and all these things, too. And well, that but, was that was great for me too. You know, I was at a low point uh, at that time. I had been commuting two hours each way. So four hours back and forth from Toronto to my home at the risk of my health and my family. Eventually um, those people who know me well, it's part of my story. I, 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 my husband left me. Um, My family blew up. I got fired. There wasn't much going on except we had that night. And that's when these connections can really um, lift you up, can't they? 
and and I see so many people at conferences and you only or or online or in group chats or whatever and you know everyone has this life arc full of having to overcome adversity and come back even more resilient and then they do and it's just wonderful to look back and think of the journey that everybody's been on right but you know i i think of that night as an explosive self-permissory event when what I, does that even mean but when i you know again i i have i have no hobbies and uh i don't watch a lot of tv or sports linkedin is my espn and I can tell you, and most people know this, I have a memory of every fundraiser like a baseball card. I can tell you their stats, wins and losses, high scores, all of it. And when I track the people of that night, after that night, so many of us went away saying, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. I'm going to jump. I'm going to take the risk. And I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have a nagging little whispering voice at night that says, what if? Well, then we should. A lot should. of what ifs in the world of fundraising and social good. So we're we're speaking mysteriously about some kind of you know cult ritual that happened there. That wasn't the case. What it was happened? just a, a great <laughs> dinner and a non-conference conversation to go deep and get personal yeah. and take a risk to be human beings. You know what we did? We did an appreciative inquiry for each other. We went around the circle and said, "This is what I really appreciate about you," and we did that for everybody who is at the table. And I think that we maybe didn't feel like we were appreciating ourselves at that time. And to hear other people say, I appreciate you for this reason, that idea of edification, right? Um, it was, it, it was, it was, anyway, it was great. So where are you now, are now? What do you, what do you wanna do? Where are you with your career and your future? That's a big question, I know, right? Yeah, but I again, I, you're catching me at the right time because uh, as a lot of people know, and I put out there that I run a strategic retreat for Paul Nazareth every uh, I went to one. I loved that. Yes. I loved that. I've opened it up only a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, but it's something I really do. And we just don't do this enough. And I, I always say to people, even if you've got a great supervisor and your organization has a decent performance development plan, it's not in their best interest to fully develop you. Because if the answer for you is, I gotta quit my job and start something totally new or yeah. jump into a sector that's not charity, yeah. that's not gonna be in your performance development plan. So you gotta do a strategic plan for me incorporated. Mm -hmm. And so I've just finished mine and wonderfully enough, you know, have, have come to a place where I can double down on the things I believe in you know, I didn't, you know, I've been a volunteer for CAGP for 17 years and now just rounding the corner on two and a half working with the organization. And I'm happy to say it's going well. I'm able to really double down on the strategies that I believe in. Um, but also 2021 is, is going to be the year where I give myself permission to go and kind of be the rogue agent. And this podcast is part of it, have conversations that aren't convenient for the sector. Yeah. A lot of stuff that's not convenient, but if we're going to build back from this thing, then we got to have inconvenient and uncomfortable conversations. Absolutely. I'm all about that. You know, I love yeah. that. I'm okay. excited because we've got a good plan of ones that we're going to talk about that people are going to hear stuff that they're not hearing anywhere else. And and putting those taboo topics on the table, I think, in a, in a really unscripted way uh, is something I, my hope is, um, my hope is that 
Well, let me say this. I had a conversation with a new client just yesterday um, and he was telling me about his, he was being very professional. And I said, um, I can see that you are actually in need of a unicorn, <laughs> that you are at the end of your rope, you're really tired, your organization doesn't understand you, and we need to come up with a plan. And he got emotional. He's like, yeah, how did you see me? And it's because so many people are like that, right? So hopefully by naming it and talking about it, people will want to come back and, and have more conversations and participate in those conversations in our clubhouse meeting and on Twitter and Instagram and connect with us on LinkedIn. And we can build that community of connection and support at a time when we're actually feeling very alienated, right? I think a lot of people are. And I hope that having these conversations, we can be there for them. So I'm so grateful to you for making time in your life to make this a priority because I'm really jazzed about it. And um, and to everyone who, you know, to all our listeners, we don't actually have any yet, but you know what, we will, because who's not going to want to listen to this, right? And we've got some uh, great folks who are really willing to step up. In the next podcast, we're going to talk about why we're doing another podcast. And we touched a little bit about that today. And then should I say? Um, then we have next week, we're chatting with Rakesh Lakhani, our dear, dear friend, and we're going to chat about resilience. The funny thing about Rakesh, he said, I don't know if I'm really an expert on this topic. I said, dude, yeah. you make everybody feel good after they talk to you. Of course, we're going to talk to you about this. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm kind of jazzed for that. And, and we have a few other things up our sleeves. So let's get started. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Thanks, Paul. And thank you everyone for joining us today. See you next time. Our final words of wisdom come from Jane Goodall, who is quoted as saying, what you do makes a real difference. And so you have to decide what is the difference that you want to make. So what is the difference you want to make? Let us know by visiting intersectionhub.ca and join our community. We're so glad you were here today. See you next time.